Hello and welcome to The Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news. I'm Johnny McFarlane and today I am joined by Mr. Duncan Castles, the, the main man, the guru of transfers. He's here with me because Mr. Ian McGarry is away chasing butterflies this week. So I've stepped in at the last minute, uh, mainly because it's uh, Duncan's 50th birthday this week. And as an old git, I'd like to take the mick out of him a little bit for uh, reaching his dotage. Duncan, how are you feeling? Are you being out on your walking stick today, sort of stumbling around, getting getting a, a wee bit sort of uh, wee bit exercise for yourself to keep yourself going? Got the walking stick, got the Zimmer frame. I'm all sorted for the next uh, 10 years and then and that'll be the end of it. So all those um, people who, who don't enjoy the Transfer Window podcast, they've only got a decade left to go. And of course, you, there won't be a better present imaginable than having the Kaiser Duck back to, to lead you through the news and events of today. A, a very special return for the Kaiser Duck and um, and thank you for your little video message that you sent for on my birthday I was much appreciated um, my girlfriend wants to know how long it took you to um, teach that duck to do its uh, ventriloquism well these are the, the magic things that you can do nowadays with a, a computer and, and a little bit of time uh, on your hands Duncan and you know I've got plenty of time on my hands being a, being a man of leisure. So anyway, let's move on to some actual uh, news. Let's get stuck into what's been happening in the world of football and where else to start but Chelsea, where Frank Lampard, of course, has been sacked unceremoniously, despite being a club legend and replaced with German manager, former PSG coach Thomas Tuchel. Duncan, I suppose we're going to start with um, a wee look at Lampard. For you, did he deserve to be sacked? Well, I think anyone who listened to the last podcast where we did a, an extensive section on Frank Lampard um, and what he'd done as manager of Chelsea and we we did note that after um, the Leicester City game he acted in a way that led people to believe that he thought his time at, at Chelsea was up and as it transpired that was correct and what delayed him, what gave him that one more game was uh, Chelsea's search for a replacement coach um, and, a, a, and a focus particularly on a German-speaking replacement coach uh, for the you know very straight reason that they wanted to get better out of their two um, very expensive summer signings, Kai Havertz and Timo Werner, um, which as we noted in that podcast, as we noted when the whole um, transfer process went on and that, you know, this basically started last January, when Chelsea's transfer window ban was lifted and the ability to strengthen the, the squad was presented back to them. It was a dispute between Lampard and Marina Granovskaya um, acting as the principal for Roman Abramovich over which players should be brought in to improve the squad. It was happening last January that they were chasing attacking players. Jaden Sancho in that case was the, the principal one. And Lampard was saying, no, what I need is a elite centre-back. Um, I want to improve at goalkeeper. I'm not happy with Kepa's performances there. And I want to improve it at full-back. That rolled on through the summer. Um, we told you in this podcast that uh, Frank Lampard had identified Declan Rice 
as the player he wanted to bring in at centre back. That was prevented from happening. In the end, he he got um, Ben Chilwell from Leicester City. So one of the players that he asked for in one position. He was given Thiago Silva, not his ideal signing at centre-back. And he was given um, a goalkeeper who was chosen for him by the club rather than being his own choice. That basically was the genesis of what went wrong. And it's a pattern we've seen with, with many other coaches at Chelsea. I think if you look at what Ian um, said, Ian McGarry said on his uh, on his Twitter feed after the, the sacking was confirmed by Chelsea, he said that the mistake that Lampard had made was to take the job out of loyalty to the club at a time when um, he knew it was a tough ask uh, and he knew, was aware that the club were turning to him because that summer they weren't allowed to act in the transfer market. They'd made a mess of things with Maurizio Sarri. They needed changes. They wanted to promote from the academy. They were able to convince Lampard to take the job at a time which was, I think, clearly too early in his career. Um, And it suited Chelsea and it helped Chelsea get through a difficult period. And then when they ran into their first really bad set of results under Lampard. Um, results I think you could say were coming and, and not an, an entirely great surprise because of some of the errors he and his assistant manager had been making in tactical decisions and also because of the imbalance of the team, he was the one who was sacrificed. Um, I think this is though, it was a different sacking from others at Chelsea. Um, for the first time ever, after changing manager, Roman Abramovich himself was quoted on the dismissal. Um, and actually an email was sent to club supporters uh, using Abramovich's word to explain why they had removed one of their most popular players ever. And um, you know, we're talking about, if you include interim appointments, uh, this being the 17th managerial change that Abramovich has made in his 18 years in charge of Chelsea, which is a quite phenomenal rate of turnover. And and also, I think, is important that in this particular case, he talked about why the decision was made, saying it was it was a very difficult decision for the club, not least because I have an excellent personal relationship with Frank and have the utmost respect for him. Um but Chelsea, as we predicted they would do, and it's not really a hard prediction, when the players stop performing, um, when the results go the wrong way, they move um, to change coach. They still believe that that has been the reason that they've won so many trophies uh, over the years that Abramovich has been in charge. Although, as people have noted, that in recent years, this, the success rate has dropped off. Um, that turnover of coaches hasn't been as as productive for them. Um, the last title was in 2017 under Antonio Conte. Um, that quickly turned into one of these standard disputes between the manager and the ownership over which players needed to be recruited to improve performances to the level where they could succeed in the Champions League and repeat a Premier League success. That story's been told so many times at Chelsea. Conte was removed. Um, They last won a Champions League knockout game in 2014. So they're maybe not the club that people like Tuchel 
when they're presented with the opportunity to take over, um, think they are. I think a lot of the image of Chelsea is is based on five, ten years ago when they were the the one of the dominant forces in the market, the transfer market in England, and one of the dominant forces on the field. They've had one very big spend this summer, and a lot of the criticism of Frank Lampard was has been framed around that he spent over £200 million in transfer fees in the summer and results have gone this way, therefore he wasn't doing a good job. Well, he didn't spend that money. In fact, he would rather have spent the majority of that money in other areas of the team. So I think that's an unfair criticism. What is, I think, a fair criticism is that he didn't get the maximum out of those resources and he and Jody Morris were making you know, quite fundamental coaching errors in some cases in terms of set-piece defending, which was a constant problem for them um, throughout their period at the club. And, you know, that last game at Leicester City where they decided to go essentially an all-out attack um, and got destroyed by Leicester City. And as, as we discussed in the last podcast, if you're going to go and attack a team in the Premier League, if you want to get a, a successful result by putting your attacking resources, which Chelsea have substantial attacking resources on the field and trying to blow the opposition away. Leicester City are the last team you want to do that against because they're well organised, defensively solid and they're great on the counter-attack when Jamie Vardy's in the team. And that's what we saw in that match. So they've gone for Thomas Tuchel, Duncan, which um, seems to be on the surface a slightly odd choice. Now, I'll explain why I think that. Um, This is a guy who throughout his career has been a fairly combustible manager going into a club that doesn't really do dissent from a point of view of uh, how its employees uh, deal with the, the upper echelons at the club. And you've already talked about Granskaya and the owner himself, uh, Mr. Abramovich. So, I mean, again, as an outsider, you look at that and you think, well, how's that going to fit? I mean, I suppose there'll certainly be fireworks. Do you think he's a good choice? I think this has been driven by prioritising getting a German language speaker because of the investments in Havertz and Timo Werner. Uh, They talked to other German coaches. Julian Nagelsmann was one of those, but he was employed at Leipzig um, and did not want to leave at this stage. Uh, Ralf Ranić, they also proposed to come until the end of the season. Um, and he turned that down because of the, the, the short-term nature of the appointment. Um, look, you, you can look at the market that was available to them and you have Max Allegri um, sitting in Italy a year and a half into sabbatical that from his perspective was only supposed to last for one year. Getting itchy feet, um, getting nervous about the fact that managerial jobs aren't changing at their normal rate because of COVID. The, the, the vaccine for the failing coach, is, as we've described it on the podcast before. Um, and considering taking the, the Roma job, he's, he's that nervous about getting back into work, which is one he would not have taken in normal circumstances. My understanding is that Chelsea didn't even put a call into Max Allegri in, in this circumstance now. Not putting a call into a, a coach of that level who wants to coach in the Premier League, has been targeting a, a top job elsewhere in Europe, has been working on his English language skills to prepare himself for the work, is strange. 
and I think underlines the fact that uh, what they wanted was a German speaker here. They also have, they've brought in someone who's worked with Thiago Silva before, Advantage, who has worked with Christian Pulisic before and who Pulisic has spoken positively about his time with him at, at Dortmund. So again, you can you see that as, as an advantage. He does have a, a status in European football, but I think the things you've identified are very important here. He has a history of conflict. Um, you can look at the statement that Borussia Dortmund made upon dispensing with his services after two years in charge, where they say from a sporting perspective, he did a good job, but there were um, difficulties with working with him on a day-to-day basis and, and him meeting the club's uh, working practices that made them decide to change and move elsewhere. And this, you know, this is a man who during his time at Dortmund um, banned the, one of the club's uh, senior scouts, Sven Mislintat, from the training ground because of differences of, of opinion. Um, you talk to people who work with him at Paris Saint-Germain, same story, I've got this from three separate sources, uh, senior individuals at, at PSG, all saying difficult individual to work with. And, you know, it's well described in a lot of the profiles from, you know, people like uh, Rafi Honigstein, who's been on the podcast several times talking about how he's a, a micromanager. He, he's, a, he's a man who tries to control every aspect of a football club, who um, you know, wants things set up in a way that he feels are best for the club to succeed, which is not necessarily a bad trait in a football manager. But as you say, Chelsea has a lot of experience with individuals like that. And what happens is conflict. Uh, what happens is is uh, sackings. What happens is kind of what we've seen with Lampard, where the players separate um, from the manager uh, to a certain extent, and the club decides to go with the playing staff because the playing staff have, have more money invested in them. I mean, it, one factor here is Frank Lampard wasn't paid particularly high, highly for a job of that status, and his contract uh, was due to terminate in the summer, so payoff costs were limited um, and there were communication problems with him and, and certain players and players complaining mm-hmm. about that. Chelsea are a club where players are used to the manager changing um, and they're used to when things go wrong for them, uh, seeing the club switch over. And I think you're right, Tuchel seems to run the risk of that happening again. I, you know, His own words today about what is needed uh, are, I think, positive from from a Chelsea perspective, from a Chelsea ownership perspective, in that he's saying that he doesn't feel much uh, needs to change um, and that what what needs to be given to the team is a a certain energy, um, a different kind of preparation, and that's something that he has been very good at. Um, I'm used to creating the special energy and atmosphere. You need to create the possibility to win every three days in a league like this. And I believe we can do this on a daily basis. Now that, That's him as an individual and friction with the club. Also asked a number of um, high-level coaches what they thought of him from a tactical perspective. And actually everyone came up with the same view, which is that they didn't see an identity, a clear identity in his PSG team and didn't see a clear identity in his Dortmund team. Now, 
in some ways that's been presented as a strength of Tuchel's and in fact the reason he's, he's as high in the game as he is at present is because of the work he did at Mainz um, taking, making them basically one of the, the five best teams in the Bundesliga on a tiny budget and quite openly has talked about how he needed the only way he could do that was to make them extremely tactical, tactically flexible. So they were able to change systems multiple times in a game. They were able to turn into the system that their opponents didn't want them to be playing against and, uh, and get results that way and overperform um, their budget in that fashion. Now, that clearly worked at Mainz. Um, it became more problematic at Dortmund, where he only won one trophy, a uh, German Cup in his second season. And at Paris Saint-Germain, he won a lot of trophies, but you have to win a lot of trophies at Paris Saint-Germain. Um, people have said, yes, he got to Champions League final, but remember last year's Champions League was an unusual one because quarterfinals to final were all played uh, in Portugal in one-off matches. It's a different setup to the, the, the dual-legged system. Um, we normally have, and there are coaches who suspect that Tuchel's PSG wouldn't have made it to the final in the normal setup. Players, I hear, were not particularly impressed by the the the, the huge changes in system and that that lack of identity and being asked to play different positions game after game. Um, also, some interesting stuff and uh, that I, I'm hearing from from Paris Saint Germain in that. Although he had this reputation as being a micromanager and a, and a difficult coach to work with from a player's perspective, when Neymar or Kylian Mbappe came to him and asked, for example, for training to be to take place in the afternoon rather than in the morning because it suited them, he was happy to go along with that. Um, so I think there, there are lots of elements where you can question um, whether he has the credentials and the ability to turn, as I said earlier, a team that's been underperforming um, over the last five years relative to their peers in the Premier League into winners again. Um, I think it's a risky appointment and I, and I think that this push to get a German in because they've invested in German players is a bad starting point for any kind of managerial appointment. Yeah, there's a lot of good managers out there as well. The one that stands out to me, Duncan, is Max Allegri, who's won six Serie A titles with two different clubs. Here's a guy that has a real track record of success. It's a much calmer character. Um, would he not have been a, a more obvious and, and sensible solution given the, the way that Chelsea operates? Yeah, as I just said, I'm surprised that, uh, according to my information, there wasn't even a call put into Max Allegri in this situation where he would have been open to taking that call and having that conversation. Um, you, I, the German factor is one, but you also wonder if Chelsea, who've had quite a lot of success with Italian coaches in the past, in fact, it's kind of been their default position to switch to the best available Italian coach when they need a a managerial change, whether they've had such a rough experience with Antonio Conte that they wanted to avoid going there again. <laughs> That's uh, an, an unimagined or, or, or unthought out uh, impact of uh, Conte's uh, personality, perhaps. But uh, there we go. 
We're going to move on now to Manchester United. It's the first pod uh, that we've had since the Liverpool game where they won 3-2, obviously, in the FA Cup. What was uh, your reaction, Duncan, to, to that result first and foremost? I think, um, look, it was a good, it was a great game of football because unlike the, the Premier League match, both teams went on the attack. Um, you know, Solskjaer received a lot of criticism for the way he set up against Liverpool in the in the Premier League game, uh, deep block and and relying on his his counter attack, uh, defended himself and said that's not what we're planning to do. In the FA Cup tie, they were much more progressive. Um, Liverpool were also, I think, set up in a way where they were gambling on taking advantage of Manchester United's defence. So they they played Rhys Williams at centre-back um, instead of having Jordan Henderson in there. Um, they were a weaker lineup because of that and, and they really exposed Williams because they played Alexander-Arnold high up the field. They played a very aggressive uh, midfield with Milner the most defensive of them, but him on the left side of the of the three. Salah not really doing a great deal of tracking back. So there was that open channel, which Luke Shaw did very well, taking advantage of, um, and got a lot of praise in that game for for his attacking play. But the back was pushed up. There wasn't a midfielder covering, and there was a very young, inexperienced defender uh, to run up against. Um, defensively, they were very poor. Uh, again, Interesting Luke Shaw uh, making positional errors in both of the goals that Liverpool scored and making another major positional error to allow Mo Salah in for a chance that uh, Dean Henderson did very well to save, um, which would have made it 3-2 for Liverpool. I think one of the most interesting things of that game was Solskjaer's reaction to beating Liverpool Um, and comments he made about the way they played, which I think were quite revealing not only about his tactics and past matches, but also about where he thinks he's now got Manchester United to. I mean, he said, it's a good feeling to play on our terms. We've had some good results over the few years that I've been here. We've gone maybe with a diamond or gone with a 3-5-2, different systems to just nullify opponents. To win today with a positive selection, with the way we see our team, of course, that's a statement to ourselves. That's a confidence boost that we can match the best with our style of football. Now, interesting, because he talks about basically the, the, the defensive fashion he's had to set up against stronger opponents through his time at Manchester United. And interesting, because he seemed to feel this was a watershed moment um, in that they had beaten a major opponent playing attacking football. My sense after that game was perhaps he's jumped the gun a little because of it was a match of fine margins and Liverpool were not at their strongest, not even close to being at their strongest with the obvious issues they have in defence. Um, and a question over how United would respond to that. Um, and I talked to a, a, a former coach who'd been at Manchester United um, after the game and he said yes they're playing better um, they've got a more balanced squad than they've ever had this is the best squad since Ferguson they've got a lot of attacking options they've got a very deep squad um, I think they've been helped by uh, the Premier League allowing nine substitutes uh, rather than seven substitutes so that deep squad is 
you can you know you can list 20 players in each game and basically wait and see what the game presents to you and have an option for all of those circumstances whereas the old seven substitute system you had to be a little bit more um, careful on and who you you put on the bench but his view was the coach's view was let's see if they can sustain it my experience of manchester united is when the players start to believe what is being said about them they drop off and they go and play sheffield united um sheffield united statistically the worst start to a premier league first first half to a premier league season in the history of the competition um and that's exactly what happened the team dropped off uh sheffield played well they played a, a, an aggressive physical game which it was predictable because that is their their style of play and uh and united conceded again at a set piece something that's been a, an issue for them throughout this season throughout uh, Solskjaer's time at the club. Now there's an argument that that Billy Sharp fouled um, David De Gea um, when he fell into him ahead of of that uh, corner kick they scored from, and it's a, it's a reasonable argument. But it was another set piece um, goal conceded, and then the second goal they conceded was mistake after mistake, uh, failure to put pressure on on the opponents, uh, very very poor defending. And um, look, I think it shows the reality of where Manchester United are under Solskjaer, which is they they have had a lot of results this season where the game the result could have gone easily gone the other way. They've won a lot of games by a single goal. Um, they've had at least six points in the Premier League from very dubious penalty decisions. They've even had a penalty given after the the final whistle was blown in, in a game against Brighton where they were uh, outplayed. Um, to see them lose to Sheffield for the, who haven't won at Old Trafford since 1973, you look at their, um, their home form, uh, they have a negative goal difference at home, yet they are being talked of as title contenders. They're only six on goal difference in the top 10 teams in the league. Sheffield United, for example, who they lost against, have only scored twice in two Premier League games all season, both of those against Manchester United. Um, I think there is still a lot to do there. And um, I think it comes back to what we've said on this podcast about Solskjaer from the very start is he is not an elite coach. Um, is he maximising the resources available to him at the club? That squad, which is better than it's been since the Ferguson area, squad that's had uh, a higher net spend um, than any other club in Europe, according to the chief executive over the last three transfer windows, who has six elite um, central midfielders to choose from they're able to use Donny van de Beek as uh, you know number five or number six choice and sometimes a player in Real Madrid were trying to get in the summer and rated one of the, the top uh, young midfield talents in Europe is Solskjaer adding value to that and is he adding as much value as a um, a better coach with more experience at, at the top level of the game could add I think the answer to that is no, he's not. Um, and therefore, 
you'll get these kind of performances from time to time. There, there's no doubt the team is improving, but it should be improving given the differential spend on it relative uh, to their opponents, given the emergence of players like Mason Greenwood. Um, has it improved as much as it could improve? No, I don't think it has. Um, and and you see it on a pretty regular basis in, when they come up, not just against the stronger teams, but also when they come up against teams that you would expect them to to comfortably get results at home against. They, I mean, they've lost four times in the, the Premier League at home already this season. It's only just halfway through. That's more home defeats in the Premier League than the the previous manager suffered in his entire um, three seasons at uh, at the club. Duncan, is this a structural thing? Is this the problem with these low blocks still hasn't been solved? Is that, is that your theory on this? They, they just haven't, even with the additions of um, Fernandes and the, the players that they have up front, Rashford, Martial, the quality they have in wide areas, they just still haven't quite got that tactical solution to going up against physical teams who sit deep. They've got more ways of beating opponents. They have, in Bruno Fernandes, one of the top players in the division, they, they've got also with Paul Pogba players who can create a goal out of nothing, who can do the unexpected. So they are able to dig themselves out of games through, through that individual quality. And those players are focused. Bruno Fernandes is highly, highly competitive and desperate to win and trying to drag the team along with them. And Paul Pogba has a point to, to prove at the moment and is enjoying uh, the praise he's, he's getting for his performances. So, so that helps. And it's given them the ability to beat teams that they weren't beating before. But yes, there's still those basic problems with the defence. His first choice defence has Harry Maguire in, who, who is badly exposed when he plays a high line, mm. positionally suspect, no recovery pace, great in one-on-one duels, but not set up to play high lines against opposition. Luke Shaw uh, has made defensive positional errors throughout his entire career. He still does it, even though he appears to have sorted out his private life and got himself in better physical shape. Aaron Wan-Bissak is a great one-on-one defender, arguably one of the best one-on-one defenders in England, but has positional problems. And um, and Lindelof is, is all right, um, but you could see how they could improve their defence by spending again in that area. Um, look, they're... I think it's more than just the personnel with them, though. I, I was talking to someone who knows the club well this week, and he was saying that they don't actually have a very coherent way of playing out from the back. So they're they're clearly instructed by Solskjaer to pass to keep the ball at the back and pass from the back. Um, it's something he he takes pride in, and he wants them to play that way. But he I was saying that he doesn't see the kind of structured system for getting the ball from back to front that, for example, a Manchester City will use. It's it's like, we have to play from the back, we will play from the back and we'll see what happens. And, and that gets caught by opponents from time to time. So they are structural issues, but I think there's also a bigger structural issue at the club, which is the Glazers and Ed Woodward. Woodward has a lot invested in, in Solskjaer working. Um, he's been able to sell a story around it of where we're going back 
to you know the Manchester United culture. It'll take a while for us to compete for trophies again. Don't expect us to be competitive now, but it will happen down the line. The Glazers, he's cheap solution for them. Um, their priority is to remain in the Champions League. He's managed to do just enough to get them in the Champions League. He should get them in the Champions League from where they are this season with a with a COVID affected season and a lot of clubs underperforming. Um, and that's sufficient for them. They don't actually need to to win trophies. They want the money from the Champions League and they want the fans to be off their back. And that's what Solskjaer has managed to get them to. Um, partly, I think, because he gets very, very little criticism um, from prominent former Manchester United players in the media because he's friends with them. So that, I think, also takes heat off them and makes it easy for them to to carry on. So I think there's more than one structural problem there. Mm. You, you talk about the defence, Duncan, and one player who has actually been performing quite well recently is Eric Bailly. Now, he wasn't involved against Sheffield United, and I believe you can give us an update on why that was. Yeah, just uh, like a bit of information that he was involved in a car crash um, ahead of the game. Um, I won't make the joke about the game being a car crash itself. Um, he wasn't driving. He, someone was driving the car for him um, and he was not seriously injured. But um, I think Solskjaer did the, the correct thing there and took him out of the lineup when there was quite a lot of pressure to play him. And the plan had been to play him um, to let him recover properly and just check everything was okay before they they move him uh, back into the team. The words he used were, I think, quite carefully selected. He said, Eric was down to play this game, but he got a bang yesterday and is sore and bruised. It's unfortunate for him. So everyone thought that was a, a bang, a knock in training. Actually, it was uh, unfortunately in a car accident. Well, hopefully he'll be back up and running as soon as possible, and I'm sure he will be from that description. Now, let's uh, talk about the transfer market. We are the transfer podcast after all, the transfer window podcast even, I'll say that properly. Um, this has been a bizarre year, Duncan, for, for everyone, um, but I don't think any of us have ever seen a market quite like this. And I know COVID is affecting everyone's lives in different ways, but but it's, it's almost surreal, isn't it, to see such little movement in the market. Yeah, I, I mean, I think unless something's happened during the recording of this podcast, we're still on only four permanent transfers into Premier League clubs in the entirety of the January window. And they're they're not exactly um, high-profile, expensive ones, the majority of them. We've got Robert Snodgrass, um, good Scottish player and a, and, a, and a talent who has something to add. Um, to West Bromwich Albion where he's moved to be, but was surplus to requirements at West Ham um, switching. We've got a backup out of contract goalkeeper Andrew Lonergan going to West Brom as well and we've got um, Amagiallo um, making his move from Atlanta to Manchester United but that was a deal that was agreed in the summer um, so it's not a new transfer. And um, and the one where there's been a bit of new money injected was Aston Villa signing Morgan Sanson from Marseille. Um, Marseille were unhappy with Aston Villa's initial um, offer. And from the Marseille side, they say eventually they got a little bit over 17 million euros as a transfer fee plus bonuses on top of that. Um, we've gone in previous podcasts into the reasons why this isn't happening and, and it's I, much of it is down to lack of liquidity in the market. Um, obviously, 
COVID affecting clubs' financial resources, but I think more importantly, the kind of uh, loans that were being put forward by financial institutions to bankroll transfers on limited low interest rates um, to allow the club to take the player immediately and then pay with future broadcast revenues have pretty much dried up. And and that stopped um, clubs from having the capital to do deals. Also, you talk to um, people working in the market and they will say the expectations just don't quite tally. So when you're trying to sign a player, the selling club are still looking for big transfer fees, fees you, they'd be looking for pre-COVID. And the buying club is saying, well, that's impossible. Um, and, you know, people are trying to tell the, the, the selling club, you better take this money now because there might be even less available in the summer. You've got to look at it more real- realistically, but that has not been happening. And, and there are just very few deals around. And, you know, an example, one deal, which I don't think has been reported yet in Spain, uh, Valencia need a centre-back. Um, and they're working on a deal to take the Argentinian under-23 international. Nenun Perez, who is an Atletico Madrid player who's been on loan at Granada in the same division this season and played just three games for Granada. But that is basically as much money as they can uh, achieve to get a player into their club is to take a loan player from another club who hasn't been on loan at a competitor club because they needed to get a centre-back in. And that is not unfamiliar um there will i think be deals in the last few days uh fagundo palistri at manchester united is trying to get a loan deal in spain interesting to see where he'll end up uh in the top division you have alaves huesca elche looking for wingers um, but they're all involved in a relegation battle so you wonder whether manchester united will want to send him there and whether those clubs would be prepared to take a risk on a on a you know a very underdeveloped player at this stage, and there's some clubs in the Segunda also looking for wingers: Logronis, Tenerife, Albacete, and Lugo. Possibly one of those. Um, other things happening: Jesse Lingard uh, wanted by West Ham United. West Ham United have made Saeed Ben Rama's transfer permanent. Um, uh, turning it from the loan deal that it was structured as with a with a obligatory option to buy in the summer because of the problems he had with his medical into a permanent deal, 25 million plus 5 million of performance related variables. That opens up a slot for a domestic loan. Um, The question is going to be if Lingard decides to go to West Ham United and, and certainly Manchester United are open to letting him go, whether that ends West Ham United's search for a centre forward, which David Moyes had, um, identified as a priority after they they sold Alerta Ajax um, in this window. Um, Damari Gray, a lot of interest in him, um, out of contract, as we've discussed for some time on the podcast in the summer, very unhappy with his treatment by Brendan Rodgers, being offered a new deal by Leicester City, which he's so far refused to sign. Um, Crystal Palace interested, Southampton very interested for the summer. Uh, overseas you have Benfica who've had conversations, Dortmund, Bayer Leverkusen. There was a report this week that Leverkusen has agreed personal terms. I believe that's not the case at present. Um, what he is in is an interesting situation because he's English, would qualify as a homegrown player, 
Um, that's always been a valuable thing in the Premier League transfer market, but I think it's even more valuable post-Brexit where clubs are struggling um, to take players from overseas. The rules are not clear. Um, it's complicated the standard process of recruiting European players, but also from other areas. So I think Gray and his advisors are, are well aware of that and can and see the ability to to find a, a better deal in the summer and are likely to to wait to do that. Uh, and then one other is Deli Ali, um, who's pushing hard to be allowed to move to Paris Saint-Germain. There has now been an offer from PSG for the player. I'm told that offer was for a loan to the end of the, the season uh, with no option to buy and a small loan fee. Um, and that Levy has rejected that, um, wasn't happy with the structure, not prepared to do it. And Delhi's not happy with the with having that move blocked, the opportunity to go to PSG, play football, play under Pochettino again. But the thinking at Tottenham is that he will buckle down um, within a week or two and will be available for them to use in the squad as they continue to try and uh, and get that first trophy um, with the, the League Cup final coming up and still in all three other competitions. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that one pans out. That's probably the, the one that you would expect most to happen at the very, very last minute as Daniel Levy bargains his way through the, 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 the deal. We're going to move on to the donkeys, of course, the most highly anticipated part of this podcast, for me at least. <laughs> and today's award is as follows. It's the Boris Johnson I'm Sorry Award for football's greatest non-Mia culpa. This is, of course, in reference to the Prime Minister's highly pathetic apology in the face of 100,000 deaths largely brought about by his own blundering incompetence. So I'm going to give you the three nominees. The first one is, of course, Eric Cantona for his kung fu kick that you'll all remember in 1995 on Crystal Palace fan Matthew Simmons. Now, he was hammered, community service, huge find by Manchester United fan, the whole lot. Um, he appeared to be contrite at first um, after the, the Football Association pulled him up. He apologised to United, his lawyer, and, of course, Sir Alex Ferguson, but there was a kicker at the end of his apology when he said, I would also like to apologise to the prostitute who shared my bed last night. Uh, the ban was subsequently doubled and a further 10k added to the fine. Uh, our second nomination, it's going to be a tough one to beat that one, I think, uh, Thierry Henry and his famous handball that pumped Ireland out of the 2010 World Cup qualifiers. Uh, of course, Henri handled the ball just before crossing to William Gallas in extra time after Ireland had pretty much uh, really been the better side against France and uh, caused consternation across the country. Henri tweeted, I am not the referee, but if I hurt someone, I'm sorry. Uh, I think given the fact that the Frenchman still can't go into Ireland uh, without being uh, probably chased out of the country, I'll tell you a little bit about how that apology was taken there. And finally, our third nominee is Granit Jaha. The former Arsenal captain, he was uh, booed for not leaving the pitch quickly enough during a 2-2 draw with Crystal Palace. As he was leaving, he cupped his hands to his ears and told the fans well and truly where to go. Now, he didn't apologise for quite a long time, but eventually he said, I got carried away and reacted uh, in a way that disrespected the group of fans that support our club, our team and myself. That has not been my intention, and I'm sorry if that is what people thought. So... <laughs> 
Not a lot of contrition there from Mr. Jaha. Duncan, who uh, gets the donkey. Yeah, two very conditional apologies, the old classic of, uh, I'm sorry if you thought I said that. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it wasn't what I, I meant to say, and it's uh, it's actually on you, uh, if you if you read what I'm saying carefully. Um, but I don't think anyone can be that Eric Cantona apology. So um, <laughs> he receives the Kaiser Duck donkey. Um, for for your return to the podcast, fantastic! Is that the first donkey that's been awarded to Mister Cantona? Surely he should have a clutch of these things. I think it is, but we we'll have to we'll have to find some more for him. Yeah, I doubt he's ever going to catch up with John Terry, of course. But um, you know, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> okay, that's all from us today. If you want to hear more, you can follow us on our social media channels on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and even YouTube. That's a new one from the Kaiser Duck to get used to. Until next time, thanks for listening.